We're going to be in Luke chapter 12. Last time we were together, we covered a good chunk of scripture that encompassed seeking the kingdom of God with both the parables of the expectant and also the faithful servant, and all with overtones on focusing on the Lord's return. You know, we take blocks of scripture because of time constraints, but if you look at all of chapter 12, Jesus is intense in this chapter. He's intensely stressing the importance of our commitment to Christ and furthering God's kingdom. So the question is, what is God asking you to do personally to further his kingdom? We're all important to God, and he's given us all some type of spiritual gift. Some of us have realized our gifts. Some of us still haven't. Maybe you're new in the faith. Just keep praying about it. Um, All who are his get his blessing without exception, because we're all important to God. When I was growing up, as I was doing this, I remember we're all important to God. A friend of mine, uh, his mom had this plaque on the wall, and it was a picture of a little kid sitting there in contemplation. And the little kid said, I know I'm important because God don't make junk. But that's true. God doesn't make junk. We are all important to him. Some of you may be struggling. Uh, it's common these days for you know, single moms. You have some kids and uh, maybe your husband or your boyfriend have left you. And you say to yourself, or you say to me, Joe, what can I do? My answer to you is teach those kids about Jesus. Behind many great Christian men and women is a great mom who never looked to get accolades. The Bible is replete with this type of example. Teach those kids, you never know. Two examples. Growing up, uh, we had pretty humble means. It was my mom and me and my sister, and we lived in my grandparents' basement. It was partially finished. It was small. It was cold. uh, But, you know, I thought that we, you know, we shopped at Kmart, I got, there was like a big sneaker bin, and my my mom, it was like a dollar a pair of sneakers. Just pick it out, put it to your feet. This one looks good, and I would take it to school, wear them to school, and and the kids would make fun of me. So I thought that, you know, I I came from humble means, but I would see my mom every once in a while writing a check. And I'd be like, what are you writing a check for? And she's like, well, for people who don't have food. So my mom even taught me back, back then that there was always somebody who had it worse than you. And she actually taught me the biblical principle of tithing. Another example, uh, a brother in the Lord, he uh, you know, grew up in a, with a God-fearing mother who taught him about Jesus. And then as he got older and went to college, he took a different path. And the Lord brought us together, and I started talking to him about the Lord. And everything that I said came back to him because he remembered everything that his mom taught, taught him from when he was young. So it was just two great examples of people who think, but Joe, I can't do anything. I don't have any means. But yes, you can. God has all given us uh, an ability to do something, even if it means teaching those kids about Jesus Christ. So today the entire portion of Scripture that we're going to cover is unique to Luke's Gospel, where Jesus is trying to get his hearers to do the following. One, to count the cost of discipleship. Two, to discern the times. Three, to repent of their self-directed ways and get moving, bear some fruit. So before we begin, uh, he just teaches the parable of the faithful servant, which is where we left off. But we see that most of the parable had to do with the unfaithful servant and subsequent punishment. Understand what Jesus, that Jesus speaks more about hell and punishment and judgment. I'm sure you've heard this. Than he does, he speaks more about that than he speaks about heavenly bliss. Why? Because he's mean and he wants to frighten us? No, of course that's not the answer. It's because he loves us and he doesn't want us to go there. That's why he does that. He's a parent 
and he's looking out for the best for all of us. If you have children and you never warned your kids that certain of their behavior could lead to incarceration and possibly death, you wouldn't, you'd be a bad parent because a good parent warns their kids of impending danger and the consequences of sin and behavior. So let's begin. Verse 49. Jesus says, I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it was already kindled. Fire. It's an Old Testament picture of judgment. We also read in the New Testament, and we've read this because we covered Luke chapter 3, but I'm going to go over it again. Luke chapter 3, 15 through 18. It says this, Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, meaning John the Baptist, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to them all, I indeed baptize you with water. But one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. Isn't that interesting? That's an exhortation. That's not being mean. He's exhorting people. You know, it's the, the gospel message is a whole message. We're saved. But what are we saved from? If we don't know what we're saved from, then we're missing the whole message. And verse 8, uh, I wanted to put that, tag that onto there. John says this, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children uh, to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So Jesus says, I wish it was already kindled, going back to Luke chapter 12. What is he waiting for? He's waiting for the fulfillment, the culmination, maybe the separation of the sheep from the goats, judgment time. Basically, he's looking forward to righteous rule. You know, <laughs> I guess there's a... Why, do we be, why, do people, why does anybody become a cop? Probably should have your head examined before you take that profession. But, you know, I, I look at the injustices in the world, and it bothers me. It really does bother me. But you know what? God sees, I just see little snippets in the news here and there, maybe in my local community. But God sees all the injustice of the world all at the same time. Imagine how he feels. So this is a side of Jesus that uh, maybe liberal or modern theologians don't want to acknowledge. And I say that word not as a party affiliation, but in a dictionary sense of the word, uh, in the sense that the Bible is not taken literally. There's not a strict interpretation of the scripture, that people take liberties with the scripture. The problem is that a partial Jesus is no Jesus at all. It's the, the touchy-feely Jesus that people want to present. But remember, there's two, two sides to our God. There's, he's a God of judgment and justice, and he's a God of love and mercy. And basically, we determine, we determine, imagine that, where we want to fall under. We don't have to get to that part of judgment and justice. We can, through the blood of Jesus Christ, be saved through all that. We get to choose the terms of our relationship with our Creator. Isn't that amazing? God has given us that opportunity. Uh, verse 50, Jesus says, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. The Greek word bapto, many of you have heard this, it means to literally to cover wholly with fluid or immersion. Now what he's talking about here isn't a, 
that he's going to be water baptized again, he's talking about a baptism into suffering and to death. Turn with me to Matthew 20, verse 22. We're starting with verse 21. This is where, um, and I love this lady, James and John's mom come to Jesus, and she's petitioning Jesus to have James and John sit on Jesus' right hand and left. Something special about this lady. But verse 21, Jesus um, He asks her, he says to her, what do you wish? And she says to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? I believe at this point he's turning to James and John because I'm sure he figures they probably put her up to it. (laughs) Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it is prepared by my father. So, again, this is the baptism of suffering because Jesus was already water baptized and there's no indication that it happens again from this point in history till the crucifixion. When a Christian gets baptized, Part of what he or she acknowledges is that they're identifying with Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That's the the significance. We identify, but he went through it. It's water and symbolism for us, but for him it was complete suffering and payment for the sins of the world. Some Christians actually do end up being baptized with that baptism. As uh, Stephen pointed out, how dangerous it is in Guatemala and these other countries, and some Christians, uh, missionaries, actually lose their life. So they're literally baptized with that suffering. Jesus says how distressed. He's distressed uh, until it is accomplished. As he looks forward to the kindling in the last verse, right, in this verse, he's not looking forward to the Roman cross, and it shows the, the human side of him. Verse 51. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. What about peace on earth? We hear that all the time, and different people use peace to mean different things. Peace is a funny thing. One, it's clear that there's a difference between the world's peace and the Lord's peace. John 14, 27, Jesus makes that dichotomy, the differentiation. Two, the Antichrist, he's going to have a peace, right? Oh, yeah, peace in the Middle East, and a lot of people are going to buy into it, and it's going to look good for a while, and people are going to praise this guy and worship him. But his peace is a false peace. It's a deceptive peace because we know what happens after that peace is broken. And then three, a phony peace. People, you've heard people say, I just want peace. Usually that has to do with maybe a situation with in-laws or somebody. And you just don't want arguments. It's not really that you want peace. You just don't want to argue about it. Let's not talk about it. Let's just have dinner, right? And four, peace with God through salvation, Romans 5.1. See somebody laughing in the back on that one. <laughs> so peace with God through salvation, Romans 5.1. And then also, lastly, uh, peace when the Lord returns to rule on earth. That's that true phys- uh, physical peace that's going to happen. Well, what about this peace? What, is, what's the, what are we talking about here? Well, Jesus came to bring peace on earth in the form of Romans 5.1, the ceasefire of hostilities between the creation and the creator. Not that it was his fault, but we've walked away from him. And in Romans 5, Jesus mends that fence. We have a peace between us and God. 
And Jesus will also come again to rule the earth and institute a lasting peace. That's going to happen, that bliss on earth. But Jesus' presence will always disturb any type of phony peace that damns anyone to hell for the sake of tolerance. Division, as we can see here, division is always preferred over tolerance if it means that even some people will be wrenched away from that Pied Piperish tune of any way is okay when it comes to salvation. In that instance, it's better to have division than a whole bunch of people go off the cliff like the mice. Division. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. Jesus puts everyone on the planet when he confronts them in an uncomfortable position of a forced choice. Years ago, when I was, uh, I had all these odd jobs uh, when I was going to college in the summers in between college. One of them was I was a Cutco cutlery salesman. <laughs> I tell you what, I have some of those knives. They're great knives. There's a plug. I don't know if I'm supposed to do that. But, and I don't sell it anymore, okay? So just understand that. But basically what they teach you is when they train you is you're supposed to push the top of the line product on people. And then if they hem and haw and they don't want to do it, it's just a sales pitch. Then they tr you try to push the second one. And in a sense, you're forcing somebody to buy something. You're putting in them in a forced choice position. I didn't do very well in that biz business because I felt uncomfortable doing that. But you're forcing them to do something. Even the police reports that we have now, they're called forced choice reports. That's the title. And what happens is when you do an investigation report, there's all these blocks, modus operandi, type of weapon, uh, mode of entry, all this kind of stuff, and you have to choose one of those blocks. And if you don't do it, the report gets kicked back at you, and you have to redo the report. So forced choice. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a fun thing to be put in that position. But understand this, Jesus isn't forcing us to choose cutlery or a vacuum cleaner or anything like that. What he's doing is he's forcing us to make a choice about where we want to spend eternity. Because we're all going to spend eternity somewhere, whether we realize it or not. Um, you know, as Calvary, Chapel's, Calvary Chapel pastors often say, I've heard them say, the question is, what section do you want in eternity? The smoking or the non-smoking section? <laughs> I'd like to take credit for that one, but I heard it somewhere else. Verse 52 Jesus says, for from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus literally, as the expression goes, hits close to home, literally. You could grow up in a, and I just made my own uh, what is it, an acronym, a Sino home, a Chino home. And I, that stands to me for Christian in name only, Sino. Well, you can be in that type of home and your sister could be into witchcraft. Hey, I'm doing witchcraft. Hey, that's great. Your brother could be into Buddhism. Your parents could practice their nominal Christian faith. And all that would be okay. It's okay. But now if you, if you, tell, you come home and tell your parents, hey, I'm born again. <laughs> what are you doing? What do you mean you're born again? That, that shakes up the family. And I know a lot of you have experienced this. They're looking now to disown you because you're born again. Why? Well, those born-agains take the Bible literally. Those born-agains are always quoting Scripture. Those born-agains tell you there's only one way to heaven. Yes, yes, and yes. And it comes right from Scripture, John chapter 3. And that's because when the kingdom of God is so near to people, when people are just put in that position where the kingdom of God is put right next to you, okay, that makes people uncomfortable. 
because you have to make a decision, and it scares the living daylights out of people. I would rather be in my nominal faith, and don't bother me, I won't bother you. It's okay for you, your thing, and my thing's okay for me. Don't preach to me, right? The, the kingdom of heaven comes close to people, and it makes people uncomfortable because it forces them to take a choice. Are you with God or are you not with God? Too many churches are so afraid of offending people that they wouldn't dare preach the truth of God's word because they might lose some tithing members. But, you know, uh, friends with a lot of missionaries, I talk with missionaries often. I support uh, Voice of the Martyrs and Gospel for Asia, very good organizations that go out into other countries and help to preach the word, help people to live, because a lot of these people are ostracized from their family. And you're lucky if that's the worst thing that happens to you. In these villages, you can't drink from the well anymore because you become a Christian. And they, they throw you out. So a lot of these organizations go there and help them with uh, well digging equipment and implements. And they, they help them to live a life because now they're on their own. Kind of reminds me of, again, again, Jesus is so clear here. It's so true. The worst that sometimes we get in this country is our family giving us a hard time. But in, in those countries, it's, it's a whole different story. The people, your own kids would sell you out to the authorities. So this section is the cost of discipleship. You know, everything in life costs something. When I was uh, in school and uh, learning economics for my, one of my majors, uh, I remember there was an expression that the economics teacher would say it was called tanstiful. And what it stood for is there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. And that's an economic term. But anyway... Uh, Again, everything costs us something. However, eternal life didn't cost us anything because Jesus paid for it on the cross because we could never afford what he, what he had to pay for. And, you know, sometimes you get these minor, minor light afflictions from your own family members, and it's just a, it's a minor consequence of our response uh, to, our, to the debt that was paid for us. Verse 54 it says, then he said also to the multitude, when you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather, and there it is. Now, a cloud forming, if you know your geography and you know where Israel is located, uh, to the west, not, not so many miles would be the Mediterranean Sea. So if you saw a cloud forming in the west, you would know that, that a storm was coming. You knew those were rain clouds. And if you felt a, a hot a, a wind blow from the southern part, well, if you take Israel and you go south, you hit the Arabian Peninsula and you hit Africa. So you would know that there would be the hot equatorial winds would be coming up and you know that hot weather would be coming. So it was prior to the science of meteorology, the people had a basic understanding of weather patterns. And even today, even before uh, our meteorologic, meteorologic science, should have practiced that word, uh, we, we had some basic understanding. You know, the farmers knew certain things. Whenever we go to Pennsylvania, my wife grew up in Ohio, so whenever we go out west and there's a lot of cow pastures and she sees all the cows laying down, she says to me, it's going to rain. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's like this, this little thing that farmers knew about. And you know what? It did rain. But they kind of had these little ideas, these little things that they would, uh, like little barometric tests about the weather. Verse 56 Jesus says, hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and the earth, but how is it you cannot discern this time? Jesus was really perturbed because they had a working basic knowledge of the weather, but they were dumbed down regarding spiritual things. They relied so much now on the religious system and the rabbinical commentaries when the word of God had all the answers they needed. They relied solely on the religious system. 
How many people do you know think that they're going to heaven because they're of a certain denomination? I mean, I would even say this to people who go to Calvary. There's no guarantee because you go to Calvary. It has to be your relationship with your creator. It's you and him alone. It has nothing to do with the organization. It's not like a gym membership card where, you know, there's, there's a, a little barcode at the pearly gates and you put your card through and you just get in. It's not how it works. I have a friend of mine who, uh, he's a, a nice guy, he's a good guy, but he, his, by his own lips, he lives his life as godless as possible. And his thing is, if he dies or he gets shot or something happens to him and he's on his deathbed, all he has to do is get somebody, make a phone call, get a priest and come in to give him his last rites, and he gets in. It's almost like, that's like, it's like you're mocking God. Could you imagine God standing up there going, Gabriel, give the priest a flat tire. I don't want that guy getting in here. It, you know, it's like home base. What, what, what's that all about? It's about your relationship with God. And the, with the mere attitude of trying to defeat God and trying to sneak in under the radar, your heart is not right with him. It's not going to work. But could this apply to our generation? I would say absolutely. You know, when there's a tragedy or impending doom happen, it wakes people up. When 9-11 happened, people started talking about God and Jesus. didn't take but a year before all that stuff started dying down again. Then the ACLU got involved and said, don't talk about God and Jesus anymore. Katrina, the same thing. A tragedy. People were of faith. They were seeking the Lord. And, you know, sometime later, it dies down. A few months ago, when the war broke out in the Middle East, I had all kinds of people asking me questions about eschatology, you know, end-time prophecy and uh, what's going to happen, what does the Bible say. And uh, there was actually CNN or one of the big uh, news things actually said, could this be the, the, uh, the Ezekiel battle in 38 and 39? Like they were asked, could you believe that? But again, now everything's died down and people, it's, they moved on. Happens all the time, right? Verse 57, he says, yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him. Lest he drag you to the judge, the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the, last, the very last might. Jesus had a frustration with this generation. Why can't you figure out what's right, is what he says to them. You know, this illustration, he kind of goes to this illustration. You might say, well, what, what does this have to do with anything? Well, every time Jesus tells a, a, a story or a parable, it always has to do with what he's talking about. And in the temporal world, if a valid accusation was made against you, you did something wrong, okay? And now you're going to try to settle your dispute with the accuser. They had an unusual custom back then where the uh, accuser and the uh, defendant would actually go to court together. Could you imagine that? Probably beat each other up on the way, but it probably... Uh, Saved a lot of the uh, taxpayers' money with the courts. I don't know. They had to settle it somehow. So you're on your way with your accuser. You've been validly accused of something you did wrong. You're on your way to, to court, and you're hoping to appease this guy in the hopes that you work something out. Because when you go to the judge, he may impose a much harsher sentence than your, your agreement here. And you get thrown into what's called a debtor's prison. You have to stay there until you pay the last mite, which is, was worth less than a penny. And a lot of times people, you know, now you're in prison, you can't work. You could have been there forever. You could have died in prison. And even in our jurisprudence system, if people can't pay a warrant, what happens is the judge assigns them so much jail time, and each day is worth, I don't know, 40 or 
So over the course of a month, you could pay off a few thousand dollars for time served. But however, unlike our prisons that are, have air conditioning and heating and t cable TV, and you've heard all that stuff, but it's true because I do prison ministry. They do have a lot of nice stuff. Uh, they have you know, dental plan, medical plan, Bible study, whatever they could want, it's in the prison. But the prison that Jesus is talking about, and especially today in many other countries, they're brutal. The government is not responsible to feed you in some of these prisons. If you don't have family or friends that can come bring you food, you starve to death. And if you, if you do make it, there's certainly no medical or dental plan. A lot of people died from infection. And also, uh, you don't have that quiet time. You have to work in these prisons. So it's not uncommon not to make it out of there alive. But the picture that we need to get from this section is a few things. Number one, we've offended God. We can insert ourselves into this story. We've offended God. We broke his rules. We have not achieved his perfection. And it's his heaven. He has every right to keep people out that don't achieve his sinless perfection, right? And we have a punishment coming our way in the form of eternal punishment, hell. But the only way to, on the way to judgment to kind of get out of this, because we're all headed there, to, the way to settle the, uh, the picture, the, the problem amicably, is that to trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's the only way we're, we're going to avoid that sentence. That's what Jesus is showing us. The other picture is ignorance is not bliss. There's no excuse for us to be ignorant of our responsibilities towards God. And in the next portion of Scripture, Jesus teaches on repentance and then the subsequent bearing of fruit from that repentance. Verse 1 in chapter 13. It says, There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled or mixed with their sacrifices. This is a very unusual uh, statement. You probably conjure up a lot of thoughts from just reading verse 1. But we've actually, uh, I'm going to follow this according to secular history. Now we know, we talked about Pontius Pilate before. He was basically a, a military man who turned governor of Judea. Didn't like being there despised the Jews, and he would often push the envelope when it came to dealing with the Jewish people. Two things he, that was recorded in history, and he did many more to really irritate the Jews, was number one, he had the Jewish temple treasury raided to help build an aqueduct. The second thing he did was he, had the, he paraded the Roman standards. The Roman standards were like those poles, and they had flags, and each flag meant something different. But in addition to those flags were like busts. They were like heads of a man or a face of an eagle, and basically they were graven images. And the Jews were really, they didn't want those standards in Jerusalem. Uh, and he didn't care. The, whatever they didn't like, he did. So he would parade them purposely in the area by the temple, and that really incensed them which led to rioting and demonstrations. Now, some of the Jews, who were the Galileans, who were, who were rioting or who were you know, demonstrating, were killed during the Roman quelling of these uprisings. And somehow, the Galileans' blood got mixed with the sacrifices that uh, were normally slaughtered on the altar. If you're familiar with the temple, there was the temple building, and prior to the temple building was the altar, where the animals were sacrificed. Okay? So, again, not sure how it happened, but it could have been as simple as it was just a bloodbath. The Romans tried to quell it. They killed a lot of people in the temple area, and the result was the Galileans were killed violently, and their blood was shed as commonly as the animal sacrifices, hence the mingling or the mixing. Now, some people will look at this and say that you know, Pilate had mingled the blood with their sacrifices, thinking he was doing some type of human sacrifice, but everything I've read about Pontius Pilate, that doesn't really fit. So this is the best understanding, and, and it is a reason for why I'm going through all this. So this was brought to Jesus' attention, this horrible act 
and they're saying, hey, Jesus, did you hear like current events? Did you hear what happened? What do you think of that? Now, to me, it's, it seems like the question of when they came to Jesus and said, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They were trying to pin him down on a position. And normally it was the religious system that did that because they figured if they could get Jesus to say something pro-Roman government, they could say, see, he's not the Messiah. There's, the Messiah is supposed to deliver us. And the other thing is if Jesus uh, said, no, we shouldn't pay taxes, you know, the heck with the Romans. Then, of course, they would secretly go to Herod or any of these or Pontius Pilate and say, listen, this guy's subversive. You know, he's a, a dissident or whatever. Uh, so they would try to pin Jesus down into a position to see if they could either discount him as the Messiah or get him in trouble. They always try to put him into a position where he had no choice but to answer something that would have caused him a problem. So the question is, will he condemn Pilate or will he condone Pilate? But Jesus took the high road always and always spoke of eternal things. Now, the question for us is, do we always take the high road as Christians? And that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Are we quick to apologize when we've hurt people? And it's tough to swallow your pride. You know, it's like a big lump in your throat and, and apologize. But... You know, I've had to apologize a lot in my life. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. And show me a person who doesn't apologize, and I'll show you a person eventually who doesn't have many friends left. You know, it's got to be something that we do, humble ourselves and say, hey, will you forgive me? I'm sorry. The other thing is taking the high road. Are we quick to see other people's sides of an issue? You know, when you are having a dispute with somebody, try to think of it from their perspective. Try to get into their mind and see what, how they feel offended. You know, and try to have that amicable, because we're all sinners. You know, even if you're, you think you're 100% right on a situation and all your friends are saying, yeah, you're right in this situation, there's a little bit of sin there. There's something you've done wrong, and there's something that you could look at somebody else's point of view. A good investigator, a good police investigator, will always try to get into the mind of a criminal so he could try to see where his next step is and, you know, catch the guy. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who disagrees with me is a criminal, but you know where I'm going with that. But do we, are, do we steer our conversations out of the gutter? You know, people may ask you questions about your life before a Christian, might try to get you to talk about things, uh, things that are not edifying, partake in, uh, you know, dirty jokes or something like that. You know, do we always take the high road? Do we try to steer the conversation away from that and, and present ourselves as a Christian? Verse 2 through 3. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, No. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, some of the people thought, uh, some of the devout Jews, and even you could see it in Israel today. You know, when Israel goes off to war, even today, certain of the population, they won't fight because they don't believe in it. And even back then, uh, maybe, you know, actually not maybe, but they felt that some of these Galileans got what they deserved because they were demonstrating and they were rioting and they were being subversive that when the Romans killed them, that's, that they got what they deserved. Uh, there was a, preva a prevailing thought or superstition that suffering, affliction, or maybe dying a violent death was a judgment from God. Now, this goes all the way back to Job's friends. Remember those three guys? You know, Job, all these things happened to him and his friends come. At first, they did a great job. They were quiet for, what, a week? And then when they opened their mouths, that was when all the problems started. They basically were blaming Job for the position that he was in. Well, if you're suffering so much, you, might have, you must have done something wrong and you're getting what you deserved. But... Even today, there's a movement to blame for the same. You know, you, if you're sick or there's something wrong with you or, you know, you're being persecuted, then you don't have enough faith to overcome that. You're not being a good enough Christian. And that's not scriptural. If that was the case, then Jesus and the disciples 
were the biggest losers going because they all suffered a martyr's death except for John, right? And understand this too. When you die, dying, the act of dying is a breakdown of the body, okay? It's whether it's a, an illness that overcomes you or it's a respiratory system or a circulatory system or something that just overtakes your body. It really starts with some type of affliction and then it, it, it snowballs and then eventually you die. So uh, it, that's definitely not scriptural because we all die. That means, you know, that means nobody's had faith yet on the planet, right? But Jesus is telling them that these people, you're no different than the Galileans that died in such a way. Anything can happen to us any time, and now is the time to repent. I just want to read 2 Corinthians 6, if you want to turn to there. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3. Paul says, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And that's true. Now is the day of salvation, and not a moment too soon. You know, don't put it off. There was, uh, in 1871, there was the, the Great Fire of Chicago. At the time, D.L. Moody was preaching. And he gave the call to receive Jesus as, you know, Lord and Savior. But he said, think about it, come back next Sunday, and, you know, how many of you, he wanted to know how many would thought about it, prayed about it, and wanted to receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior. But there was a great fire, and it actually happened because some dummy put a, a lantern too close to a cow, and the cow kicked it over and started this fire that ended up consuming most of Chicago, and 270 people died in this fire. And D.L. Moody, uh, from that point on, you know, I think he lost most, if not all, of his congregation. A lot of people died. And uh, from that point on, he determined in his heart that he would never end a service without giving a call to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. He really regretted that. So you never know. I mean, freak accident, 270 people died. Who would have thought, right? Verse 4 through 5, Jesus says, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Again, current events were being referenced by Christ to, uh, to evoke a thought, you know, to provoke people. What do you think about that? And this is the way I see it, to prove a point. The project in Siloam apparently was funded by the raided Temple Treasury Fund. So Pilate raids that and uh, he goes to build, help to build, fund the project in Siloam. So, of course, the, the prevailing thought was that the victims who worked on the project got what they deserved because that was blood money. So they got what they deserved. And in a sense, what goes around comes around. How many people have heard that? People say, what goes around comes around. Some people think that's actually in the Bible. <laughs> but I have a better one. Even if nothing goes around, eventually something will come around to all of us, right? In the form of sickness, suffering, and eventually death. The statistics show that 10 out of 10 people die. That's a fact. I prepared a very cheery message for you this morning. But Jesus tells them a second time to repent, especially in the, in the light of his foreknowledge of future events. Now remember, Jesus knows all things. So uh, in 70 AD, Jesus knew that Jerusalem was going to be besieged by the Roman legions under Titus Vespasian, and eventually Jerusalem would fall and be destroyed, and it would be a horrible bloodshed. This is all historical fact. The events of a besiegement are interesting. You know, people hunkered down. You saw this in uh, 
the city of Tyre, the, the coastal city. Uh, it's actually the, um, the island city off of Tyre with Alexander the Great. It happened then. It happened in Jerusalem. It happened in many walled cities. People would hunker down. They would have all their supplies, and they would defend the walls from the invaders, and hopefully they would go away or they would you know, prevail. But there would be tension on both sides. Both parties wouldn't give in. They would wear each other down. And this was the result. Eventually, the food and the water would run out on the inside. People would die of thirst and starvation. Disease would set in, murder. Um, and at sometimes it's been reported cannibalism. It's been reported that when the Romans eventually went into Jerusalem, they were horrified by the things that they saw. But eventually, there's a breach in the wall by the invaders, if they're tenacious enough, and uh, mass slaughter and bloodshed. So Jesus is saying to them, look, and again, he's got this foreknowledge. If that's not bad enough, you know, the Tower of Siloam and all the other things that are happening, uh, even, even the, the events in 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem, if that's not bad enough, the worst thing is no repentance and dying in that state, and now you have eternity in hell to look forward to. So physical things could be bad, but, um, you know, as we don't know the beauty and the wondrous things that we're going to see in heaven, we also don't know the horrors that are going to be in hell. Uh, and, and, you know, Jesus doesn't want people to go there, but... Jesus is saying, look, wake up. You people have to wake up. Repent. Turn from your ways. You know, change your mind. We need to hear the same thing in America. I'm going to go to Proverbs 6, just two verses, uh, 10 through 11. Proverbs 6. He says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a robber and your need like an armed man. Not your want, but your need. You know, when we're, we're asleep at the wheel, when we're asleep spiritually, these are the things that happen, that comes upon us. The only thing good in the sense for a besieged city is to come to grips with your own mortality. I'm sure that, uh, I mean, if, if we were put in a situation with that, what would we be thinking of? We're going to die. They're eventually going to get in here and we're going to die. So the good thing in that situation was they, they, people would have an opportunity to realize their own mortality and start making it right with the Lord. But the bad thing for America is things are too good here. As, as, as uh, good as things are in other countries, uh, even a friend of mine, like I said, I, I think I've quoted him before, he lives in Italy now, he's lived there for some time. He says, even our apartments, you know, your apartments here are like our homes in Italy. We don't have that much space to live in. We have very small quarters. So even in Europe, you know, things are good there, but things are just incredible here. We have just so much in this country. But Satan has lulled our society into a deathful spiritual slumber. And a lot of this country, you're just sleeping spiritually, you know, and eventually our, uh, our need will come upon us like an armed man. You ever, you ever wonder why, and, you know, people look at things from different perspectives. I try to be optimistic. Uh, you know, people get older, they, uh, they, you get arthritis, you have these problems with your body, and you start to, you know, it's the decaying process. I'm 38, I'll be 39 at the end of this month, and I think I've passed that point somewhere. I think I'm on the downslope. But what happens is we realize our own mortality as we get older. Just think about if uh, God, and, I, and maybe I'm the only one who's thought this, but imagine if God made us in a way where you know, we, we're, we're babies, we're born, we become teens, we become adults, we become stronger and bigger as time goes on, and eventually we kind of plateau. And now we're at the peak of our strength, maybe in our 20s, right? And then what happens is there's an expiration date on all of us, but we don't age. We just stay at that vitality and vigor until the expiration date that none of us know, and then boom, we're done. It's the end, right? God didn't make us like that. 
he made us so that, and hopefully most of us make it to old age, but uh, as we get older and as we start to age, we realize, oh, man, I'm aching. Oh, boy, I can't do the things I could do. And you, you start thinking about your own mortality and you look to God. So some people look at it as, well, most hospitals are filled with, with older people, but you know, there's time to think about your mortality and your relationship with God. So I think God, somebody said this, it's not that God wants to send us to hell. It's that if you go to hell, you really have to trip over Jesus' body to get there because there's so many safeguards that God puts in the way to us to really think about our lives that you really have to push Jesus out of the way and just throw him out of the way to get to hell. It's really a hard thing to get there. But that's, that's an interesting perspective. But well, we're going to go on to this next parable and then we're going to wrap it up. Uh, verse 6. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this tree and found none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. So he speaks this parable after the lesson on repentance. And again, we spoke about repentance. Uh, if you didn't hear the message on Wednesday, uh, Pastor Anthony did a great message, and he had a, a digression upon repentance, and it was really a good way of looking at repentance. Uh, but it's to change the mind, to totally turn around in your thoughts. Uh, Fruit-bearing trees were used in the Old Testament to describe Israel, and they're used similarly in the New Testament to describe a Christian. But whether it's the Old Testament or a New Testament, you know, people are a fruit-bearing tree. That's the way God designed us. And if we don't produce fruit, we're really good for nothing except to be cut down. We're using up the ground. But this also could have been, and people look at it this way, it was a direct indictment on the nation of Israel at the time. And there were many good people in Israel, and, uh, you know, Christians did a lot of things, and, you know, there's a lot of good people. But as a whole, the nation was not bearing fruit. And it could have been, it's been said that this was a discussion between the father and the son. And the three years represent the time that Jesus labored and labored, the three years of ministry. And he said, you know, just give it some more time. And then, supposedly like three and a half years, and then Jesus was crucified. So it could have been, again, that discussion between the father and son. But whether it's the nation in general or the people, you can see the picture here. The nation as a whole didn't bear fruit, okay? And in 70 AD, we spoke about the destruction of Jerusalem. The subsequent persecution, the exile of the Jews was a result of that not bearing fruit and the cutting down of that tree. But putting it all in perspective, we, speak, we see Jesus speak of the cost of discipleship. Count the costs. Suffering, division, being two of them. As much as people will say, well, you become a Christian, everything will be great and you won't have a care in the world. That's a lie. That's not true. Jesus says it right here. The other thing is he moves into the disturbing trend of the people being able to dis discern the weather and the increase of knowledge, but the dumbing down of spiritual things. Look how smart we are in this country. Laser surgery, you know, space travel, all kinds of stuff. But we're so dumb as a nation regarding spiritual things. The smarter we get, and there's like an inverse relationship between our understanding of, of, of knowledge and our understanding of spiritual things. They kind of go like this, right? And in chapter 13, he moves into repentance, as it's clear that in Scripture, repentance is a precursor to our relationship with God. I firmly believe, I take a strong stand on this, that repentance has to precede salvation. Because if not, well, I like me. I like selfish me. I like all the gods that I have in my life, okay? I like all the things that I worship, my hobbies, my this, my that. 
But you know what? I want Jesus in addition to that. Jesus is not into polytheism. You have to repent and turn away from your wicked ways, realize that you're a sinner, and turn towards God before you can receive Jesus into your life because he won't be crowded. And four, finally, appropriately, this should lead to the bearing of fruit, which is the physical, observable manifestations of a person's relationship to Christ. So a tree created to bear fruit is supposed to do just that. Otherwise, it has no purpose in existing. And, you know, Paul asks us many times and in many different ways to examine ourselves, examine our faith, examine us before the Lord's Supper. He always asks us to do a self-check and examine ourselves to see really if there's any life in our limbs. If we're a tree, is there any life in our limbs? Are we bearing fruit? You know, I would say this. Don't wait for a tragedy. Don't wait for for it to be too late. Don't wait for a, a cow in your neighborhood to kick over a lantern and start a fire. I mean, it's just too late. Now is the time for repentance. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Tree.